0: Good afternoon and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna.
1: This week on Citizen K. The choice was you did jail time or your kids went to the schools. And my uh, dad did six and a half years jail time for us not to go to the schools. This past Friday
0: was the second National Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada also known as Orange Shirt Day. Broderick Gabriel of Lil'wat Nation in Mount Curry, British Columbia, shares his story coming up here on Citizen K. Sixty years ago, in 1962, Bob Dylan wrote and released the ever-pertinent The Times They Are a-Changin'. Just a few years later, in 1965, The Who came out with My Generation, featuring the iconic line, I hope I die before I get old. Both these enduring psalms connect to this week's interview on Citizen K, looking at demographic shifts that are rapidly changing communities across Canada. Dr. Maxwell Hart is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University. He is also the director of the Population and Place Research Lab, where he leads the Aging Playfully and Aging People, Aging Places Research Projects. And he joined me for a fascinating conversation here on Citizen K. D- give us a sense of um, where has the real shift
2: been? Sure. Um, well, I think there's there's recent shifts, and then there's uh, long-term shifts, and then there's future shifts. And I think they're all relevant to, to this conversation and a lot of other ones. So One thing is that in in Canada, but in a lot of other countries, we have a lot of focus on a handful of big cities and the regions around them. Um, And those cities generally are younger, and they generally are growing. Um, But if we take the Canadian landscape as a whole, even if we forget the rural and only look at cities, so to speak, or or larger um, towns, the, 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 the situation changes a little bit. So I think a lot of people are aware That um, the whole world, but Canada in particular, has been aging. So now I think we're about 19% of Canadians are over 65. um, And that's expected to go up to, depending on the scenario, but go up to almost 30% um, by 2068. And so that has pretty major ramifications for how, how our society works and what it looks like. Um, And then simultaneously, it's okay to continue. um, We also have an uneven growth trajectory happening across the country. So while there are cities that are thriving and and growing, there are a lot of other places that that just aren't growing. Um, They're either slowly growing or they're stagnant or they're actually losing population. Um, And so these problems aren't necessarily problems in of themselves. But when we think about how we build cities and how we govern cities and how we, we work to support the Canadian population, all of a sudden, we realize the models that we've been using don't necessarily fit when we're outside of that younger and that growing context. Can you give me an example of, of how a model would no longer fit? Sure, I can give you a one example for each, and then we can maybe tie them together. Um, for the aging side, I think one thing that can resonate with all of us, because we're all going to age and we all know people who are older than us. If you live in a suburb in Canada, and suburbs can look very different, but if we take Anywhere from Brampton to Stony Creek, um, and all of our major municipalities have suburban areas. And you imagine living in that place for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then all of a sudden you can't drive anymore for whatever reason that might be. Your life changes drastically overnight. And since the majority of Canada is suburban, we're a very much a suburban nation, we can think about all the different issues that come into play there from social isolation to issues around frailty and safety to community cohesion. Um and it, it really I think everyone can feel that personally, but how scary that would be and how drastically your life could change overnight. On the shrinking Absolutely. side, of, yeah. So, yeah. And on the shrinking side of things, if we think of the the big the big ticket examples, often Detroit gets gets talked about. If you have a city that is well, let's say Detroit almost two million people, and then over time you get down to they're under 700,000 now. Your city isn't built for that. Um so, Everything from municipal finance, how do you pay for anything? Um, your roads, how do you continue to upkeep that? Even things like sewage. Sewage has to move at a certain rate in order to work. Water has to flow at a certain rate. All of a sudden the infrastructure doesn't really work anymore and you have a smaller population swimming you know, in a suit that's that's far too big and that's really expensive to keep up. And so we have that at different different rates but how we fund our cities and how we, we plan them, um, is actually quite difficult. And the last thing I'll say in the shrinking edge is that we don't actually build our cities for the, the population they're at. Um, planning is built around growth, it's a growth centric mindset. And so if a city is a 100,000 people, it was probably built to have more than that. And there's a lot of good reason for that, of course, historically, but now as we're seeing this uneven population distribution, what do we do? And we don't have a lot of tools for that.
0: So definitely, yes. Certain areas that maybe are growing too quickly, then it, it can't be supported. Mm-hmm. And some of the examples you pointed out there, as to how um, population is declining in a certain area, yeah. and now trying to manage those uh, those shifts.
2: Absolutely, uh, and so yeah, and so and personally, my research focuses on that on that the, the declining side of things. And luckily, you know, growth has a lot of focus and it has a lot of research and. Although it's still a challenge and we know that um, we can see that right now happening in a lot of places. Um, it is a, it is one that is you know, talked about and it is one that is, is often discussed and analyzed. And so I, I wrote a book about shrinking cities recently and the title was quietly shrinking cities. And the reason for that is that it's not something that garners a lot of attention, whether it's policy attention, media attention, or just public awareness. And so that in Canada, especially, you know these places are shrinking quietly. They're often in the peripheral areas, and so they don't get much attention. And because of that, they might not know, you know, what to do really. You touched on it uh, briefly already, uh, and the idea of,
0: say, um, a, a senior who might not be able to to get around, and but being out in the suburbs because that's mm-hmm. where they've lived. Uh, you talked about how, how creating age-friendly communities. Can you give yeah. me a, a, a bit of examples
2: as to maybe what that might look like? Sure. So yeah, it's there's been a big policy push over the last 10 plus years um, coming from the, the World Health Organization around this idea of an age-friendly city. Uh, and it can mean all, it has eight domains. I won't get into all the details, but I think some examples um, are, are some tangible examples are helpful. Um, so one thing if we just talk literally about like getting around town, um, a curb cut. If you ever walk certain places and you know the the curbs are going down every time that you need to go in front of a driveway. Um, that can be actually difficult for someone who's walking, or you could use tactile paving, so bumps on the pavement to let someone know when there's about to cross into an intersection. Um, so those are a lot of it's around accessibility, but there's there's more than that as well. It's about c- inclusion. Um, loneliness and social isolation can be a big issue for people uh, in their later life. So how do we how do we include people? How do we make sure that that social infrastructure uh, is also there? Uh, so it, it covers a lot of domains from housing to political inclusion. Um, but I think that's, we just have to think about the world around us. Um, but I'll also add thinking about the diversity of older people as well, because I think that's, that, that can be part of the issue. Some people want to do the right thing and be helpful and think, okay, we, we need an age friendly city and community to, to help, you know, these, these poor seniors. Um, but that's, that's, that's a, that's a Difficult mindset as well. It's a hugely diverse population for people, you know, 65 and over. That's an enormous group. Um, So having their input and really having them drive that conversation of what they need is also really, really important because everyone's experience will be different. And if you're talking from someone 65 to 105, that's a whole lot of different people that are falling into that category. Well, there's multiple generations in that category. Exactly. I always talk to students about uh, I think about music and so you know we've got some some early punk rockers who are now in that category and they might feel very differently than any you other know, parents or grandparents who might still be alive who were born quite a quite a bit before them. Um, and so taking that into consideration and having that happen at the community level um, I think is really important.
0: Well, and the uh, this, many of what, what is considered the baby boomer demographic is now mm-hmm. in their 60s.
2: Yeah, so it's we're good, and that's what's really pushing this 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 transformation um, in terms of our our demography, and also I think the mindset of um, of what it means to to be old, um, and I think that's a that's a social construct and always has been, but I think it's getting challenged now more than in the past, because as the baby boomers have always done, they they have always you know been such a big cohort that they're able to shift um, cultural norms and and have a big say in terms of a political voice um, and a voice in shaping society.
0: Well, and certainly speaking to that as well, um, re- the amount of Canadians who have retired—a huge jumps there—and and of course Absolutely. that's been um, a, at least a a a factor in what we're seeing now with labor
2: shortages and all of that shifting. Absolutely, and so uh, to me, the, and and then there aren't simple answers; they're complicated um, situations. And so the one thing I I kind of start when I'm thinking at the big picture level is, you know. I hope that people are able to do what they want to do. So there are sometimes situations where a person might not want to retire or they might want a more flexible um, position. Um, so the people who want to retire might want to play golf all day, like hopefully they can do that. And others who want to stay involved and in either in a work um, capacity or a volunteer capacity or some kind of combination, um, if we're able to let them harness that, then I think everyone is better off.
0: Well, I mean, that, and again, even speaking further, I mean, that's going to, again, cause uh, and already is causing some huge shifts in, in how our communities look. I mean, um, without giving my age away, often the message <laughs> growing up was, uh, you know, oh, you know, it'll be hard, you know, to sort of find, you know, good positions because um, we got so many baby boomers who are yeah.
2: um, f- filling up the workforce. Well, that has significantly been shifting. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so I get the at the big picture level. I mean, David Foote wrote a, a book, um, "Boom, Bust, and Echo," in the '90s, and uh, I still, I've read that book. Yeah it's, yeah, it's excellent. It's great. It's it's very. I mean, so, and he he does a good job tackling a very complex thing at a high level um, for a wide audience. And uh, I, I sat down. I was a when I was working at University of Toronto. I sat down with David a couple times, and it was great to pick his brain a little bit about that specific question. And thinking somewhat selfishly, you know, where do I fit in this? And what year? You know, how far ahead? you need to be. And so to kind of capture, I think, this idea that you're getting at, I often talk to students when we open our, the course I have about planning for demographic change. And I ask them, what's the greatest band of all time? And then they have a debate. And we usually, it usually settles down to like a Beatles Stones argument, even though every year the students get younger, Beatles are still part of that conversation. And then the question moves to, well, why are the Beatles the greatest band ever? And so we, we get into that, we let them go. For a while discussing it and kind of falls into a certain camp that says okay they were just they were better than everyone else Um, and then we think about demographics well they were early they had a huge audience and then so they were the very start of the baby boom and then this huge audience that could look up to them but the other side of it is that they had intense competition so you had the stones you had the kinks you had whoever else at the same time and so if anything they also had to be better in order to be competitive so it kind of gets to thinking about how demographic structures can help and hinder and change society but being at the front there's no question it makes it makes a huge difference um and we can see that um, generation to generation and there is a shift happening now um, that's definitely happening at university and everywhere in terms of the generation re- um, change around retirement and new hires and where you're born I mean it doesn't tell it doesn't do everything for you but it can make a difference and we're seeing things I know my personal life um you know daycare um, waiting lists someone born 10 years ago is in a different situation in terms of where they sit um, on that waiting list. Uh, So it it really does play a big role in everything around us. And once you put on those demographic lens, uh, you can't really look away. You see it everywhere from all these reboots of movies to, to, to job opportunities. Tell me a bit about your work with the Population in Place Research Lab. Sure. So that's a uh, my, my research lab and it's great. So it's a, it's kind of an umbrella. So I have these two strands of research, one around, one around shrinking mostly, uh, and one around aging. Um, and to me, they fit in very nicely together, but they don't always look that way. But if I was working in Japan, for example, no one would question that. They're they're very much in sync. Um, so this is just having one umbrella that can bring my students and my collaborators together in one place where we really think about how population structures are having an impact on the places where we live so that we live have an impact on our population structure. So one of the exciting projects that I'm working on right now that's um, funded by, by Shirk, is called Aging Playfully. So we're looking at the idea of play in older adults. Uh, and as, as far as we know, this is the first study to look at that in terms of environmental characteristics. Uh, so it's a very exploratory uh, study. But it's it's really exciting because we think about play, we think about playgrounds, and we think about whatever else in our urban or or suburban areas, and it's always centered around children. Uh, And, but does it need to be? Um, Sometimes we think about teenagers and skate parks, but once you get above that age, it's really it's really about consumption, it's about paying to do something, or for older adults, it's about sitting on a bench maybe, or, or Tai Chi, and we just don't really know. So it's just one example that kind of this interaction between population structures and place, that um, I'm really getting that with this research lab. Amazing. Well, Dr.
0: Hart, thank you very much for joining me. Is there anything, you know, maybe you'd like us to maybe be be thinking about just kind of in our day-to-day life as as we, uh, you know, go about our day and, and, and around our communities?
2: I think so. I think, I mean, I guess two things. One is I think thinking about that other side of growth, like what would happen in your community if all of a sudden you had less people, because um, that is a reality that's going to come to a lot of communities moving forward. Um, birth rates are down. As the community ages, you have less births. Immigration is still really targeted a certain, um, a handful of regions. And a lot of people, it's just not something they've ever thought about. And then if you haven't thought about it, then all of a sudden you have hard decisions to make. Whereas if it's at least built into the discussion, there's a chance that you might be able to get ahead of it and think about what priorities are and how you can shift your mindset. The second thing that's a little bit more fun is I would encourage people to think about demographic structure almost in anything that they do. If you think, okay, why is that new restaurant popular? Why is that TV show? What's this throwback, you know, fashion trend? And not only to kind of see the cycles, but also from the marketing perspective, it's pretty fascinating when you try to think about who are they trying to target? And it's often, you know, it's parents and grandparents and children trying to get as many eyeballs as possible. So once you put these lenses on about looking at population structure, I hope that at least a few people might find that they're they're pretty difficult to take off and they get a lot of interesting uh, conversations out of it. Really can change how you see the world. Absolutely. Okay,
0: Maxwell, thank you very much for joining me.
3: Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Dr. Maxwell Hart, Director of the Population in Place Research Lab and Assistant Professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University. That was certainly a fun interview. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. Friday, September 30th was the second National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Sacred fires were held to reflect on residential schools and the unmarked graves. I attended a sacred fire down at City Park, and at this sacred fire, Broderick Gabriel of the Lilawat Nation from Mount Curry, British Columbia, shared a very moving story. First of all, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and, and your experience with residential school system.
1: Um, I grew up in the Lilawat Nation, which years ago was known as Mount Currie, BC. And uh, a lot of my family went to the residential school But for me and my brothers, nine brothers, uh, we weren't allowed to go because uh, the choice was you did jail time or your kids went to the schools. And my uh, dad did six and a half years jail time for us not to go to the schools. So that's how I grew up was uh, not going to the school because of the choice my dad did uh, three months per child every September when the orange bus would come for the kids he said I got to get ready and he was gone for three months per child so that was the the choice back then in this in the, I'm 56 years old so that was still happening in the 50s and 60s I was born in 66 so that's what we experienced and uh, uh, this
0: day, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, this is the second one. Um, What what, what do you think uh, that we should really, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike should be reflecting on on a a day like this?
1: Uh, The Orange Shirt Day. Uh, One of my cousins out west started the Orange Shirt Campaignage and I think this day is to uh, help pray for healing for what has happened with the 215 plus the ones that uh, this orange shirt uh, represents with the the girl and her grandmother her grandmother giving her the orange shirt was happy that she got the shirt on for going to school and then the the school took away that shirt and threw it away she never saw it again but she was really sad so that's what this day is all about is uh healing uh there's lots to be healed from the schools and what has happened um yeah so just a lot of prayers and healing thinking of the people that are really struggling with drugs and alcohol due to the schools and the abuses that has happened
0: well thank you for sharing your experience
1: yeah okay have a good day
0: also at the sacred fire, I spoke with environmental biology student at Queens University, Sierra Robinson. This National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, or In Shirt Day, um, what does this day mean to you personally?
3: Um, probably just like to take the time to um, like recognize colonialism that's still going on in like our society, and like to take the time out of our busy lives to like be here, um, like sharing space with people, um, and just thinking about. Um, how colonialism has affected Indigenous people um, and that it's still ongoing and the intergenerational trauma that has come out of um, all the residential school survivors um, and how we as settlers like need to recognise that and like put in everyday work to re- reconcile with, with those people.
0: Do you feel that we... Um how do you feel that we're doing as a country with regards to that reconciliation?
3: Um, considering we have not uh, fulfilled the calls to action that are in place, I would say not the best. But having this day um, and people recognizing it for the second time is is a step in the right direction, I would say. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sierra, for sharing a quick thought. I appreciate it. Thank you perspectives from student Sierra Robinson and Broderick Gabriel of Lil'wat Nation on National Truth and Reconciliation Day down at City Park where they held a sacred fire. While at the sacred fire, I connected with Jerry Juret. She is an author and the spokesperson for the Youth Imagine the Future Festival that just began yesterday. There has been no shortage of talk on the climate crisis from documentaries to protests, rallies and more. With that, of course, comes strong emotions, such as climate anxiety and depression, and youth are certainly feeling it when they think about their future. The Youth Imagine the Future Festival, as the title says, encourages youth to imagine the future and feel more positive about it within the context of climate change. To learn more about the festival, here is my conversation with Jerry Jurette, here on Citizen K youth imagining the future a festival of writing and art Um, what is sort of the the core goal uh, for youth for a, a festival like this
4: there's two sides to that there's the goal of those of us who are collaborating to run it and there's the goal that i hope that students feel or youth feel when they participate in it so i want them to feel Uh, I want them to end up doing the fun part, researching all the amazing new green uh, and fabulous tech that's being invented and used around the world right now and all of the great nature-based solutions that are actually being effective around the world. So I want them to feel more positive about their future and to imagine, really deeply imagine, a, a real place, maybe right where they live, in the future, 50 years, 200 years, doesn't matter, and then... Um, and then show us that. And, you know, I, I, I think there'll be a ripple effect outwards from that. Maybe that will um, make their family feel more positive. And certainly people who come to see their art or read their stories will feel more positive.
0: Okay, so because, yeah, I mean, certainly the topic of climate change... Uh, brings up a lot of of, uh, of negative emotions. So really, the idea of imagining the future is, is actually to show that maybe there is some hope left in that sense.
4: Yes. So behind the scenes, uh, there are so... I've read personally so many articles recently about climate anxiety and climate depression. CBC's had a few articles, and um, all of the large collaborators, the... Uh, Faculty of Education at Queen's University, um, Kingston Community Credit Union, of course, 350 Kingston. 350,
0: 350
4: Kingston. 350 yeah. Kingston. And um, the uh, wonderful sisters at the Providence Centre Justice and Peace, they all um, feel strongly that... Uh, this this rapid growth of climate anxiety and depression that is freezing young people needs needs a different trajectory. We, they need they need some healing. They need to face, turn around away. F- I'm not saying to ignore the bad news, but they need to turn towards the solutions and maybe help bring everybody up with them and work towards them. We can work towards them if we visualize a better future. It's that quote wow. from. It's that quote from that um, wonderful book, Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. So if you can imagine it, we can get there.
0: Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? Um, So why through art or through writing?
4: Well, at first I was just going to do writing because writing is um, the art that I work in. I write short stories, and lately I've written a lot of solar punk stories, which is this genre, and um, ha- have had several published, and uh, one is coming out next week. And um, so, that's a natural for me. I'm comfortable with that, and I've given some free workshops, and I would ha- happily come in at least as, at least by Zoom to give a little workshop in any classroom where any teacher invites me to to help kids to um, do a little solar punk writing exercise to get them started on this. So it's a natural for me. Uh, I, I imagine and I write, but I know other people imagine and they do art. And I'm just sorry I can't do all the arts because uh, I'm not there yet.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, so this is for those uh, 13 to 18 uh, in the limestone at Algonquin School Boards And I understand that in addition to having this experience, there are prizes.
4: Yes, there are a lot of prizes. I just want to make a tiny correction. It's also for uh, youth who live in the region that's covered by uh, the borders of uh, Limestone and Algonquin because they might be homeschooled or they might be in one of the two French boards. I'm sorry to say that we don't have an official translator. So if they participate in short story writing, I need to have a translation in English, but they could do art. Uh, Now, prizes. Oh, yes. So, so far we have uh, two or three great gift certificates from Art Noise, a couple from Novel Idea, a couple from the local refilleries. And I was at Minotaur yesterday, and the owner walked around the store and gathered up really thoughtful, careful prizes worth almost $200. So, yeah, prizes are still coming in.
0: Amazing. Okay, and they have until the deadline of November 7th to submit...
4: That's right, they do. So I hope they get started. They go to our website, which is youthimaginethefuture.com and read the guidelines and start doing, start doing some research and write and create art.
0: Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. That was my conversation with Jerry Girette about the Youth Imagine the Future Festival. Now, just a quick update that just came in uh, regarding the top prize for the festival. The top prize for winners in both the writing and art categories is a $500 award from the Kingston Community Credit Union in the form of a GIC, which will mature once the student graduates from high school. There are also four $100 cash prizes. YouthImagineTheFuture.com for more information. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna.